There'll be three of us uh, doing the, the Old Testament reading. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his son, older son and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I'm old. I do not know the day of my death. Now take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food, such as I love. And bring it to me, so that I may eat, that my, my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord, before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Rebekah... But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in her house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, 
See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and, every, and bless everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came, and I blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, oh, me also, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing." Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now, behold, he has taken away my blessing? And he said to me, have you, he, he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O oh my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about by Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, and Haran, and stay with him a while, until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. What should I be bereft of both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman. Arise, go to Padan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, 
and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, one ancient hope, good morning, it's, it's good to be with you. And before we turn to this text of, of God's grace working through a very broken family, let us come together in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the truth with which it speaks. We thank you that it doesn't tell stories of heroes who are in no need of your work and your grace, but it's the account of you working powerfully in the lives of people like Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Rebekah, people like you and like me, Lord, who are in desperate need of your grace and who are in desperate need of your gospel. We pray, Father, that we would hear and rest in and cling to your gospel this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, when we think about a blessing, it, it might contain more than we actually think. Because when we, when we talk about blessing someone, especially the kind of blessing that we find here in the present passage, it's to speak of what is good for someone. To bless something was to tell them what would happen, what God would bring about in their life, and it was a blessing because this was a good thing. A blessing then demands that there exists both a particular good course for our life and a bad course for our life. A blessing in the Bible is a blessing for human flourishing. A blessing says that this is what it means to flourish at a human, as a human, and this is what God is committed to bringing about. If that's the case, then it means that human flourishing, that God's blessing looks one way and not another. And this is not only true of, of Scripture, of course, but, but it's true about any words that we speak concerning what life is about. We might hear someone say that life is about finding that perfect person to be with. Well, that would mean that the life of flourishing is ultimately a life of romantic love. If you're in such a relationship, then you are flourishing. But if you're not, then you're not flourishing. Saying the good life is one of romance is also saying what the good life is not. And so if it's true that romantic love is our highest good, then, then any blessing that doesn't focus primarily on romantic love, well, it's not a true blessing. Or we, we might think of, of this. I don't know if you played this as, as a kid, but I, I did this. There was a, a game called the Game of, of Life. And essentially, how you won the Game of Life was by getting more money and more resources than all of the other players. And of course, if, if you were the winner, then everyone else was the loser. And we can often think about real life 
like this. Winning and, and so living the good life is getting wealth and status and success, professional or personal. And losing and so failing to flourish is not getting these things. If financial and professional success are our true highest goods, then any blessing that does not focus primarily on them, well, that's not a true blessing. Or perhaps we say there's really no meaning to life at all. Life is just what you make it. You provide the meaning. Well, if that's the case, then there really is no true form of human flourishing. All we find are just different preferences. What might be a blessing to you might actually be a curse to someone else. Just like I might like the taste of coffee, but you might prefer the taste of, of tea. There's no real true form of human flourishing. There's just different preferences. A blessing then contains much more than what we might think. It communicates both what we believe human flourishing is and what it is not. To bless someone then is to tell them what the particular form of the good life is. And the present passage is structured around the act of blessing. And to be sure, it has much to teach us about blessings. Toward that end, I want to look at the passage under two headings. We have the blessing of Jacob, and we have the blessing of God. So let's look first at the blessing of Jacob. How does the passage begin? Well, we find Isaac, and he instructs his oldest son to go and to hunt and to bring back game and to prepare a meal for him. And as we looked at last week in Genesis 25, why does Isaac love Esau? Well, he loves Esau because he ate of his game, and we find this relationship continuing even on what seems Isaac's deathbed. Isaac loves Esau because Esau is the kind of son that Isaac always wanted. Esau gets out there, he hunts, he finds game, and then he brings it back for Isaac to eat. This is why he loves Esau, and this is why he will bless Esau. So he instructs Esau, go out and hunt, find the meat, prepare the meat, and quote, bring it to me so that I may eat it, that my soul may bless you before I die. And so what's the logic here? What's the logic of the blessing? Well, you give me food and I will bless you. The blessing does not solely flow from the father's love for his child. It's, it's transactional in some sense. You do something for me and I'll do something for you. You, you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back. This blessing in, in some way, shape, or form is a blessing that's earned. And so we find that Esau relates to his father more like a worker than as a son. He has to work to keep his father happy. He has to work to keep his father proud. He has to work to maintain his father's approval. He has to show that he's worthy of his father's love, that he's worthy of this blessing. And so the father's love is something that must be earned. It's not something that Esau can rest in. And so Esau finds himself trying to earn what Isaac should have given to him freely. 
But there's another problem, a deep, deep problem. If you remember, while Jacob and Esau were still in the womb of Rebekah, Isaac and Rebekah were given a prophecy, a prophecy that said that the younger Jacob would receive the greater blessing, that it would be from the line of Jacob that the promised one would come, the one who would bless all the families of the earth. This one would come from the lineage of Jacob, not from the lineage of Esau. But Isaac has been fighting against this prophecy for just as long as he has been a father. He's determined to give Esau the greater blessing. And we see this, that rather than making this a big family ceremony, which it should have been, we find Isaac attempting to bless his son in secret. He's trying to hide it from Rebekah and to hide it from Jacob. And actually, if he didn't love food more than Esau, his plan, at least the way that he envisioned it, would have worked. If Esau had not left to go and get the food, then Isaac could have blessed Esau immediately, right then, right there. But Rebekah overhears Isaac's plan, and Rebekah is determined that the family follow the prophecy of God. However, she believes she must resort to deceptive and underhanded means to bring this about. And as we'll see, this will bring with it terrible family fallout. And so what does Rebecca do? She, she takes Jacob and she disguises him as Esau. And she provides and prepares a meal for Jacob that he can present to Isaac, his father, and so, following her words, Jacob comes, he presents himself to his father, he presents himself as Esau, as his brother. But the plan is not without a hitch, and in the account we find two problems. One, Jacob's voice, and two, how quickly the meal was provided. Let's look at both. Concerning Jacob's voice, Obviously, when Jacob speaks, Isaac recognizes that it's the voice of Jacob. And it's interesting because commentators will point out that in this account, we, all, we actually see all of Isaac's five senses in play. He cannot see Jacob because his eyes are dimmed, but he hears Jacob, he tastes the meal, he feels the goat skin and hair, and lastly, he, he smells the clothes of Esau. And the scholar Leon Cass makes an important point about this interaction, showing that he doesn't trust the sense that he should. Cass writes the following, Isaac's only intact sense hearing, he does not trust. Isaac, a sensualist, is misled by his senses. He does not hearken to the word. Sight cannot help him here. Isaac's eyes have been dimmed, nor can taste or touch or smell. The only thing that can help him here are his ears, his hearing. But Jacob has spent his whole life plugging his ears to the voice of God, the voice that has long told him that he should not be doing what he is doing right now. And so hearing is the one sense that Isaac has rejected. And so why would he heed it? Why would he follow it now? 
Even more, Isaac has made the good gift of food his very greatest good, what he loves the most. He loves the touch, the taste, the smell of his son's game. And this is his greatest good, and hearing has no place in it. What matters to Isaac is what he can taste, what he can touch, what he can smell. His true delights and his true guides are physical pleasures. And this is how he has come to know the world. Like the person who cannot help but see everyone first and foremost as a physical object or as a business connection or as a source of money or as a future letter of recommendation, so too does Isaac see the world. And this makes him more animal than human. Cass goes on to write the following. Any remaining suspicion is dispelled when he calls Jacob over to kiss him and smells the smell of his garment. For Isaac, smell, the lowest and most animal of the senses, turns out to be decisive. So how does Isaac come to the conclusion that this person in his room actually is his son Esau? Well, by smelling him. And Cass points out that this means Isaac has come to navigate the world as an animal. The one who loves the taste of animal above all else has himself, in a sense, become an animal. And we find here a basic biblical truth that we become like what we love most. We become like what we worship. And this connects to the problem of of how quickly the meal was delivered to Isaac. Remember how Isaac began his instructions. Prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. It is Isaac who will do the blessing here. It's his soul who will give the blessing and it's his soul who will decide who should be blessed. It's not primarily the blessing of God. This is the blessing of Isaac. In fact, Isaac would rather keep God's prerogative out of the matter entirely. And I think that helps us understand parts of the dialogue. For instance, Isaac asks the following, How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? And what does Jacob answer? Well, he says, Because the Lord your God granted me success. I believe Jacob knew that this was a way that he could stop the conversation. Remember, the key attribute of Jacob is he is very, very cunning, and we will see this play out through through the rest of the narrative of his life. And so what does Jacob do? Well, he brings the conversation to the Lord. And and the Lord here speaks of Yahweh, the, the covenant name of God. And Jacob knows that this, or sorry, yes, Jacob knows that this will make Isaac uncomfortable because Isaac, his whole life, is pushing against the prophecy of the Lord. Jacob knows that hearing is the one way that he can be found out. And so Jacob wants to silence the conversation as quickly as he can. And this is a risky move. This is not how Esau himself would ever speak. But he knows if he stresses the Lord your God, 
the Lord your God, Father, who you are supposed to, the Lord your God who you are meant to follow. Well, this is a false statement. The Lord did not provide the meal, so, so Jacob is using the Lord's name in vain, but he's using it to very cunning effect. Isaac is uncomfortable. It stops the conversation. No more questions, and now Isaac can turn to his more familiar senses of taste and touch and smell. And we see the same sensual disposition reflected in the blessing itself. And here we come back to what a blessing is. Remember, to, to speak of a blessing is to speak of the communication of what the good life is, what human flourishing is, and what it is not. So let's look at the blessing that Isaac gives to Jacob. He says the following over his disguised son. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. But we have to ask ourselves, are these the covenant blessings? Commentators are quick to point out that this is not the blessing that we should come to expect in the Genesis narrative. For instance, one Old Testament scholar, Gordon Winham, he writes the following, Hitherto, this blessing stands quite apart from the normal patriarchal promises. There is nothing explicit about numerous descendants or the gift of the land or the blessing to the nations, the standard ingredients of the promises. Wynnum then, observe, then observes that the only connection that we find with previous blessings comes at the end. That last line, cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. But compare this with the blessing given to Abraham when God calls him in Genesis chapter 12. God says the following, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Wyndham points out that while we find a similar type of formula between the blessing and, and the cursing, there's still very important differences. In Isaac's version, cursing those who curse you comes before blessing those who bless you. And this inverted order, putting the cursing first, lays a special emphasis upon hostility, being hostile to others, rather than the basis of the Abrahamic blessing, which is to be a blessing to others. Even more, in the Abrahamic blessing, we find a blessing and a curse, and then at the end, another blessing, a greater blessing that all of the families of the earth should be blessed through you. And even, even the grammar of the blessing is different. In Isaac's version, they're in the passive voice. He speaks of those being cursed. He speaks of those being blessed. 
the agent, the actor, the one that's carrying out this action isn't even clear. Who is the one doing the cursing and who is the one that's doing the blessing? Contrast this with the Abrahamic blessing where God himself presents himself as the agent, as the actor. I will bless those who bless you and in whom you, sorry, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. It's clear that God is the one blessing. God is the one cursing. And so not only is the blessing changed, but we find here a kind of implied distance from God, a kind of distance that we don't find in the earlier blessings. Leon Cass even says the following about this blessing. Quote, it's largely material and political, prosperity from soil, preeminence in, mastery over, and reverence from the world and the family, proper punishments for enemies, proper rewards for friends. Only in the smallest way does this blessing resemble the Abrahamic blessing. Cass even goes on to call it a purely pagan blessing. The blessing that we see here is not God's vision for the good life. This is not God's vision for human flourishing. This is Isaac's version of the good life. This is Isaac's version of flourishing, and it has very little to do with God. The logic of the Abrahamic blessing is that we are blessed to be a blessing and that through the line of Abraham, one will come who will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Yet Isaac says nothing of that here in the blessing. And the next scene helps this bring it into even higher relief. Esau comes in right after Jacob leaves the presence of his father. And after Esau learns that Jacob has stole his blessing, we find the following. Esau said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained them. Him, what then can I do for you, my son? What then can I do for you, my son? Isaac's blessing is a kind of zero-sum game. There are winners and there are losers. All of the material goods go to one brother and the other brother gets nothing. There is only so much land, only so much livestock, so much food, so much professional acclaim, so much property, so much academic success, only so much of any of these kinds of resources. So if any of these things are the goods that we most seek, then everyone else will be our competitor. If your land and your livestock is your greatest love, then every other farmer and shepherd will be a competitor. If your professional success is your greatest love, then every worker and colleague will be your competitor. If academic status is your greatest love, then every other voice in your field will be a competitor. If your reputation as intelligent or sophisticated or funny or politically informed is your greatest love, then everyone else who shares this characteristic will be your competitor. Why does Isaac emphasize cursing? Because the good life envisioned by Isaac is a life of hostility, a life of competition. Because if our greatest good is something in creation, then that means our greatest good is something that's in limited and finite supply. For instance, if, if we talk about the study of, of economics, one key 
foundation for economics is the reality of, of scarcity. As one article writes, one of the defining features of economics is scarcity, which deals with how people satisfy unlimited wants and needs with limited resources. Of course, this is not to say economics is bad. We, we need Christian economists, but rather it's to say that if our greatest goods are the things that we buy and sell, then we are creatures that are fundamentally at odds with each other. We have unlimited wants, and there is only so much grain and only so much wine to go around. If this is the good life, as Isaac tells us, then success is always at the expense of the other. C.S. Lewis will, will, will speak of what he calls chronological snobbery. And it's this tendency that we have to kind of look arrogantly back at the past and sort of congratulate ourselves that we've come so far, that we are doing so much better. But we have to ask ourselves, are things really that much different? Reflecting on the, on the harsh criticism that, that's often lobbed at younger generations, literature professor Alan Noble says that, that his experience is actually much different than what's often put out in the media. He writes the following, and, and this is a bit of a long quote, but it's, it's a good one. He says, when a young person stops coming to class, binge watches friends for 36 hours and can't seem to get out of bed, it's almost entirely because the student cares too much, not too little. They don't choose to tap out of life because they think winning is meaningless. They tap out because they are taught that winning means everything, and they cannot envision a path to winning. If you live in a hyper-competitive society where you know you cannot possibly compete against those with economic or biological advantages, why bother playing the game? Rather than failing to re accept responsibility, they find an alternative space to pursue existential justification. If I cannot compete in graduate school, I might be able to compete in a video game. If I cannot win the love of a desired spouse, I can find a sense of belonging in porn or romance stories." End quote. In our modern, hyper-competitive society, we have very much the same vision of flourishing, very much the same vision of the good life as did Isaac. And actually, our stakes for winning and losing are much, much higher than he himself could have envisioned. And my guess here is that what Noble here says of the younger generations is actually true for all of us, for persons of, of all ages. And that brings us to our second and final point, the blessing of God. There's an important logic that, that structures this passage, and, and there's two assumptions that motivate everything that happens. The first is that someone can receive the blessing of another, and the second is that someone can receive the curse of another. Jacob would not have carried out this plan if he had not believed that it was possible for him to receive the blessing intended for Esau. And when he's worried that he might be found out and his father might curse him, Rebekah, his mother, steps up and says, let your curse be on me. Only obey my voice. And so Rebekah does everything for Jacob to receive this blessing. 
Again, she puts the robes of Esau upon him. She provides and prepares the meal that Isaac requests. And here she even offers to take the curse if he is exposed and found out. However, this is a difficult passage, and I believe we are meant to read and understand this blessing as something other than the Abrahamic blessing. So Rebecca does everything so that Jacob can receive a blessing that is other than God intended. This, I believe, is Isaac's vision of the good life, Isaac's vision of flourishing. Again, it's success at the expense of the other. It is a blessing of me against you, me having everything, you having nothing. And so it's a blessing gained by underhanded and deceptive means. This is the blessing of rich grain and wine, of professional success, and of personal prowess at the expense of the other. And so it's a blessing gained at the expense of the other. It's either Jacob or Esau, but it, it can't be both. And what's our clue, our most important clue, that this might not be the blessing God intends, that this might not be the blessing of Abraham? Well, after the deception is found out, after Isaac trembles violently, after Isaac realizes that his plan has, has failed, after all of these things, we find that Isaac blesses Jacob again. He does not bless Jacob disguised as Esau, but he blesses Jacob himself. He finally loves and sees this son that he has long overlooked and ignored. Isaac looks at his son, and he tells him the plans that God has for him. And he blesses Jacob with the blessing of God, with God's vision of flourishing, with God's vision of the good life. As Jacob prepares to flee from the murderous Esau, Isaac says to Jacob what he should have said to him long, long ago. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. I believe this is the culmination of the account. I believe that we are to read this as the true blessing, not the blessing deceptively stole from his father, but the blessing of Abraham. This is not the blessing received by the work of Rebekah. Someone else dresses Jacob up in the very finest and purest of robes so that Jacob may go before his true father, God the Father, the father who has never ignored him and has always loved him. Someone else not only offers, but actually takes the curse that Jacob deserves for every act of deception that seems to define his life. Someone else prepares a meal of his own body and blood so that Jacob may receive this blessing. This someone is the promised one, the one through whom all of the families of the earth will be blessed, the one through him whom this broken family with all of its relational wounds will itself be blessed. 
And this promised one is, is Christ, the one who will come from the line of Abraham, the line of Isaac, and now from the line of Jacob. And what robes does Christ dress Jacob in? Well, the robes of his own righteousness, the righteousness of Christ's own perfect life of fully loving God and neighbor at every turn. With Christ's own righteousness, he robes us as well and presents us before the Father. And what is this curse deserved by Jacob and also deserved by us that Christ has taken? Well, this is the cross where Christ himself experiences the wrath of God for all of the ways, every way, that we have made our life one of competition for every way we have pitted ourselves against others for the sake of our own success, resources, status, self-image, and comfort, for all the ways that we have pursued the cursed blessing of Isaac. Christ has taken the curse for all of this. And what is the meal that Christ has prepared? Well, it's the bread and the wine that we taste each week the bread and the wine that nourishes our souls by the promise of the blessing given to us in the gospel. The promise that Christ has taken the curse so that we might receive the blessing, so that we might flourish according to God's plans for humanity, that we might have the good life for which God has created us. But we have to ask ourselves a question here. Wasn't it taste that led Isaac astray? If that's the case, shouldn't we be wary of this meal that Christ has prepared? Does the deception of Isaac teach us to beware of our senses? Well, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that actually led Isaac astray? He did not trust what he heard. He heard the voice of Jacob, and if he had followed and heeded his ears over what he tasted and touched and smelled, he would not have been fooled. Well, that means that we must learn to hear rightly. First and foremost, a blessing is something that's heard. We hear the blessing of God. In hearing and heeding the blessing of God, we come to understand all else. If Isaac had followed his hearing, it would have changed the whole experience. All the lies would have been exposed. This hand it's nothing but goat skin. This meal, it's not wild game, but it's, it's a goat from my herd. This smell, it's not Esau, but simply someone wearing his clothes. If Isaac had followed his hearing, all would have been exposed and all would have made sense. And so we should not be surprised that Scripture places such great emphasis upon the act of hearing as Paul tells us in Romans 10, how will they call on, him, call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. The good news is the good news of what Christ has done for us on our behalf. Christ has taken the curse and given us the blessing. 
And this is good news because it's the good news of the good life, the life of flourishing that God has called us to. Perhaps we are like Jacob, and we have never experienced the love of those whose approval we desperately seek. Or maybe we're more like Esau, and we must constantly work and strive so that we can keep the approval of other people. Either way, it's a life of competition, of scarcity, of winners and losers, of gaining at the expense of others. And if the stuff that we can taste and see and touch and smell is all that there is, then, then what other choice do we have than to get everything for us that we can right here and right now? But this is not good news. The good news that we must hear is the good news that God the Father is pleased with us, that when he looks at us, he sees the complete righteousness and goodness and justice of Jesus Christ, that he delights over us, that his love is not something that we have to earn, but is freely given to us in Christ Jesus because of what Christ has done. The good life, then, is moving out not to earn the love and the pleasure and the delight of God, but living with the full assurance and confidence of it. And so the neighbor is not a competitor because this blessing is without limit. There is no limit to our enjoyment or our sharing of God. Our very greatest good is God, and we've received him in Christ, and that's a blessing we can share with others. There is more than enough blessing, infinitely more, for both me and you and Jacob and Esau. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, then you will certainly, absolutely, without any doubt, receive the greatest possible joy, full and perfect communion with God and Christ. You will enjoy this in part now and in full in the life to come, in the resurrection, in a world free from death and sadness and sickness and corruption. This is the good life, and this is what God has called us to. And so now, since you know that you absolutely, without doubt, will receive the greatest possible joy, no question at all, you can let the other person win in your place. If someone charges you more money than they should, if someone else gets a promotion instead of you, if someone lies to you or even lies about you, you will miss out on absolutely nothing. And so give of yourself, give your love, give your money, give your resources, give your time. We must hear this blessing so that we can trust this good news, so that we can have faith in this wonderful promise. It's by faith that we receive this blessing. It's by faith that we become children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it's by faith that we receive the very same blessing as they did. When we hear this blessing, we find our other senses working rightly. When we hear this blessing, we can rightly taste the blessing as we share the Lord's Supper. When we hear this blessing, we can rightly see that son or that daughter or that someone that we've long overlooked and ignored, and we can learn to love them because of God's love for us. When we hear this blessing, we can rightly feel the hands of Christ and touch the scars that he has suffered on our behalf. 
When we hear this blessing, we can rightly smell the sweet aroma of Christ's robes of righteousness, those robes in which he has clothed us and by which he has presented us before the great delight of the Father. Let us pray. God, our Father, thank you that you have sent your Son, Christ Jesus, to take the curse so that we might have the blessing that we might know you and love you, that we might be loved and received by you, that we might be delighted in by you. Lord, give us ears to hear that promise more deeply every day, that we would rest in that with full and complete assurance. Thank you, Lord, for the sweet blessing that is the gospel. In Christ's name we pray, amen.